All right. Well, hey, let me start by giving y'all a Dwell update. Dwell is a app that we use as a church to listen to and read the Bible. And so many of our folks use that app on a regular basis. And so in just the first 13 days of this new year, you have listened already as a church to a total of 74,731 minutes of the Bible. Like, that's astonishing. Yeah, why, why aren't the rest of y'all clapping your hands? <laughs> you pagans. That's 1,245 minutes. I'm, I'm sorry, 1,245 hours. Like, that is astonishing. Like that, like on an average month, last year we averaged about 15,000 minutes a month. This year, almost 75,000 in 13 days. I mean, that's amazing. And so I want you to know as your pastor, that, that just, that just thrills me. Like I, I, I can't explain how I feel. It's like when I saw what y'all had committed to our uh, new building campaign so we could build this building. I was just amazed by your generosity. And I look at this number of minutes y'all are spending in the Word growing every single day. I check it every morning. And every morning it just thrills me. Because I know that anyone who comes face to face with Jesus Christ with a willing heart is going to have their life changed. Your lives are going to be changed because you're spending time with Christ in His Word. And so, more on that in a moment. First, last week we started this new series called Entrusted. And like, if I entrust you with something, it just means that I've placed something into your care, right? Like I've given you a responsibility. I've conferred trust in you. And we, Christians, have been entrusted with the greatest treasure on earth. In Jude 3 we read, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. We, Christians, have been entrusted with the truth of the Gospel, the truths of the Word of God, the truth of the nature of God. God has placed that into our care for our responsibility and we must contend for that which we have been entrusted. And as we saw last week, that word contend is a translation of a Greek word from which we get our word agonize. Which means, it means uh, to intensely struggle for a worthy cause. And as I said last week, it's right to fight when you fight for what is right. Now for some of y'all, y'all may have heard that and you're like, well good, I love a good fight. Right? Who can I punch? That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about pulling a sword or a gun. We're talking about standing for the truth of the Scripture. Standing for what God has said and how He has revealed Himself. And because it is truth we are standing for, we need to stand in the right way. Like We don't want to forget what we're contending for. Literally, what Jude says here, it's the once for all entrusted to the saints' faith. It's the only message of hope 
for a hopeless world. And if you stand for it in a way that robs people of hope, then you have done them a disservice. We're not supposed to forget what we're contending for and we don't need to content, uh, forget who we are contending with, who we are fighting with. He tells us certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only Sovereign and Lord. So who are we fighting with? Who are we contending with? Not our neighbors. Not that guy on Facebook. No, these people have slipped into the church. They're here. And they've slipped in with the intention of twisting the grace of God into a justification for sin. I mean, after all, you are forgiven already and we are free in Christ. Do whatever you want to do. And they've slipped in with the intention of denying the Lordship of Christ. Don't forget who they are and don't forget how we are to contend. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. As I look at this passage, just look at all the statements Paul makes that are like military in, in uh, his understanding. We do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Like our fighting is done with truth. Like we embrace the truth. We robe ourselves in it. We take the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God and we contend for the Gospel. And then finally, don't forget why we are to contend. It's because the faith that he talks about is too unbelievably vital to be kept a secret. If people don't hear it, if people don't understand it, if others don't embrace it, they will spend eternity without Christ. So don't undermine the message of the Gospel and the message of the faith by either being a jerk or being a wimp. Like stand firm for the faith. Like I, I, I was reading this week in the book of Ezekiel, I'm shredding through the Bible and I'm ahead. I'm shredding the shred. And so I was reading Ezekiel early this week and I was struck with how God had, was, was preparing His prophet Ezekiel to deal with the stubbornness and the hard-headedness of the nation of Israel. He tells them over and over, listen, you have to speak my words to them whether they listen to you or not. And so, like, he's got a hard job. He's dealing with people who don't want to listen. He's dealing with people who've made up their mind. And so what does God do to prepare Ezekiel? He tells him, the people of Israel are not willing to listen to you because they're not willing to listen to me. For all the Israelites are hardened and obstinate. And so here's the solution. But I will make you as unyielding and hardened as they are. 
I will make your forehead like the hardest stone, harder than flint. Do you hear what, what God is telling Ezekiel? Hey, he's like, hey, hey, Ezekiel, I have good news for you. I'm going to make you so hard-headed, man, that if they try to butt heads with you, they're going to fracture their skull. Like, isn't that great news? But guys, there are some truths that we have to be hard-headed about. There are some doctrines that we have to be holy, have a holy stubbornness related to. Things that we can't let go of. Things that we won't give in for. Like there are doctrines worth dying for. And if there are not truths in your life worth dying for, if you don't have doctrines that you're, that are worth dying for, then you have a dead faith. There are some things so significant, so eternal, so vital that we cannot live without them. I just think, oh, to have a generation of hard-headed Christians who love the truth of the faith so much, the faith once for all entrusted to the saints, that they don't bend and they don't bow and they don't break. Like this sermon series is a call to love, to love sound doctrine. Like I said last week, I'm not trying to simply get you to think the right things about doctrine. Change the way you think about theology. I want to make you love theology. And I want to make you live out your theology every day. In his great book, Do You Believe? Paul Tripp writes this, the doctrines of the Word of God are not intended just to lay claim of your brain, but also to capture your heart and transform the way that you live. Those doctrines are meant to turn you inside out and your world upside down. Biblical doctrine is much more than an outline you give confessional assent to. Doctrine is something you live in even the smallest and most mundane moments of your life. He says biblical doctrine is meant to transform your identity, alter your relationships, and reshape your finances. It's meant to change the way you think and talk, how you approach your job, how you conduct yourself in times of leisure, how you act in your marriage, and the things you do as a parent. It's meant to change the way you think about your past, interpret your present, and view the future. The truths you actually believe are the truths that you live because faith is never just intellectual assent. Biblical faith is a commitment of your heart that radically alters the way you live. Truth not lived is truth not believed. Truth not lived is truth not believed. And so this morning, as we turn our attention to the doctrine of Scripture, to look at what the church historically has always believed about the written Word of God, I just want to start by saying, along with the psalmists that our shredders are reading right now, 
I love your word, O Lord. Do you love the word of God? Do you really love it? Like, are you drawn to it? Is it life to you? Do you love the word? Like, where would you be? Like, where would you be without your Bible? Like, where would you be without the Word of God? Where would our world be without the written Word of God? I got to tell you, just for me, there are times when nothing in the world makes sense. Where everything seems upside down and inside out. There are times when nothing, nothing at all makes sense, including me. Where everything is dark. And everything is gloomy. And everything is foreboding. Yet, in the Bible, I find clarity of purpose and a blinding light of truth that is a light unto my path and a lamp unto my feet. Church, do you love the Word of God? I would be lost without it. I would be under the condemnation of God without it. I would be nothing. I would be nothing without the Word of God. I mean, without guys, without the Bible, I can't even imagine. I wouldn't know my truest friend. Like I wouldn't know Jesus without the Bible where He reveals Himself. Oh, how I love Your Word, O oh Lord. This year is kind of a big year for me, anniversary, because this year I'll celebrate 35 years as a pastor and uh, 30 years being here in Austin as part of the Association of Hill Country Churches and 15 years as your pastor. But can I just say through all of that, the Bible, my Bible, has been my constant companion. It's been my truest friend. It's been my mentor. It's been my teacher. It's been my counselor. It's been the lifter of my head. It's challenged me and convicted me. It's breathed life into me. I would be lost without it. And that's because as you read in our doctrinal statement that we hold to as a church, the Bible is the divinely inspired Word of God. Right? We believe that. It's not just words on a page or on a website. It is, a, it is supremely authoritative and completely trustworthy for matters of faith and conduct. It is without error as every word written by the human authors was inspired by the Holy Spirit. What would your life look like if you lived like you believe this? Like what would your life look like if, if you really believed that the Bible was the Word of God and that God had preserved it for thousands of years? And had it translated into your language so you could open it up and read it and hear from Him. Like if we really believe that, it would be our most treasured possession. 
It would certainly be our most well-worn possession. 2 Timothy 3 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul is saying that all of Scripture is God's Word in the sense that it's His very breath. When the Bible speaks, God Himself is speaking. That's what Paul was saying here. That's not just Paul. Shredders, we see this, right? Every prophet, every king who follows Yahweh, every one of the descendants who are faithful of Abraham all attest to this truth. When God's Word speaks, God Himself is speaking. I love what Jim Wilkin and J.T. English explain about this. They say that the doctrine of inspiration is the key doctrine for understanding what the Bible is. Everything we can say about what the Bible is flows from our understanding of inspiration. The Bible is the very breath, the very voice of God. And because Scripture is breathed out by God, it is authoritative. Because Scripture is breathed out by God, it is authoritative. Like we did the survey last week and there were a bunch of statements on it that you were supposed to you know, respond to. Either you strongly agree, somewhat agree, you're not sure, you somewhat disagree, or you, you know, strongly disagree. And a couple of the questions related to the authority of Scripture were these. The Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. Of evangelicals in our country, 87% of people who go to churches like this say that they agree with that statement. That the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. Now the next question was, the Bible has the authority to tell me what I must do. Well, only 80% of evangelicals agree with that one. Notice the drop in the percentage. Right? When you, when you, the, the affirmation drops when it goes from something that's theoretical to something that is personal. Like, I believe, man, I believe that the Bible is the Word of God. It is absolutely authoritative. Then the Bible can tell you what to do with fill in the blank. Well, I don't know about that. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. When it goes from the theoretical to the practical or personal, like we, we begin to hedge our bets. But understand that when the Bible speaks, God is speaking. Because God is the author of the Bible. God shares His authority with the Scripture. Therefore, to disobey the Bible is to disobey God. Like the Bible, like God Himself has the right and the authority to direct our lives and to control our behavior. To tell us how to live and what to do. In the Bible, God tells us how we are supposed to live. How we are supposed to order our lives. How we're supposed to do our marriages and our families. What kind of neighbors we're supposed to be. The Bible directs us. It commands us. 
how to think about life, how to think about different issues. God's Word holds the final authority. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. And where would you be without it? Like, where would I be without the Bible's authority directing my steps? Because I know what a fool I can be. Like, I know the pattern of the life I grew up in, and I would be just like it if it were not for the Word of God. Next, because Scripture is breathed out by God, not only is it authoritative, it's also perfect. Guys, your Bible is perfect. When the Bible speaks, God Himself speaks, and because the author is perfect, the Bible is also perfect. And so a couple questions related to this in the survey. One was, the Bible is 100% accurate in all that it teaches. Only, only 77% of evangelicals agreed with that. To which you have to wonder, okay, then what parts of the Bible are not, you know, accurate? I get to be the one to judge, right? And so now there is um, a, a perfect truth teller. It's me. It's no longer the Bible. I get to tell myself when I listen to the Bible and when I don't. Another question was modern science disproves the Bible. To which I would always ask where? Right? Where does this what where does science contradict what the word of God says? Now I understand that there's a difference between science and scientism. There's a difference between science as a method, science as a discipline, like science as experimentation, and scientism where it's basically a religion where you listen to the experts and you think everything they say is absolutely true even though they don't follow the scientific method. But i got to tell you, 32% of evangelicals think that, the, that science, modern science, disproves the Bible. To which I would say, where? Like the Bible is true. It has stood the test of time. Like the Bible is not a scientific book. And so the Bible is not telling us things about laws related to relativity or whatever, but the Bible is true in everything that it affirms. Because Scripture is breathed out by perfection Himself, it itself is perfect. Which means that the Bible is inerrant. That means without errors. God can't lie. I mean, he's, it's impossible for God to lie or to deceive us. And so He breathes out truth without any mixture of error. Therefore, any error that we find in the Bible is the result of our interpretation, not the text. Like our own misunderstanding of something. Like Christians, well-meaning, faithful Christians will disagree on interpretation of certain passages. That doesn't mean that the Bible is an error. We are. The Bible is also infallible. That means it's unfailing. Which means it can be trusted. Over the last few years, we have seen a what I believe to be a well-deserved erosion in the trusted institution trusted institutions of our world. Well-deserved. But in a world like that, where do you go to for any kind of anchor for your life? With Where do you go to for something that you can trust? Can I just tell you for me, I run to the Bible. You can trust your Bible more than you can trust yourself.
Hear that again. You can trust your Bible more than you can trust you. Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. Like, of course, he's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration, like Peter's literal mountaintop experience. And Peter is saying, listen, I'm not passing on a myth. I'm not passing on something I heard. Like, I was an eyewitness. I was there. Like, I was there when Jesus was glorified and when God spoke from heaven, this is my beloved Son. And so when the question comes on the survey, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but it is not literally true. 26% of evangelicals should not agree with that. The Bible is truth with no mixture of error. In fact, he says right here, listen, we don't follow cleverly devised myths. Like There's no place in the New Testament where you find the word myth used in a positive way. Like this is history. This is factual. Verse 19, he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men smoke, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit literally verse 19 when it says that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed in the word order in the Greek it's we have more sure the prophetic word what's he talking about more sure than what like, more confirmed than what? Well, Peter's talking about his personal experience on the mountain with James and John and Jesus glorified. He's saying, hey, listen, we have something that I can hold on to that is more sure than my personal experience. And it's the Word of God. It's the Scripture. Scripture is more complete it's more permanent and it's more authoritative than anyone's personal experience. So that when the question on the survey is stated like this, religious belief is a matter of personal opinion, not objective truth, and 38% of evangelicals agree with that, they must believe in some way that biblical truth is in a different category from truth. Like truth is something that conforms to reality. I'm standing on this stage. I'm taking a step down. That's reality. But people think of religious truth or biblical truth as something that's more subjective, something more emotional, 
something more existential. And yet, biblical truth, like all truth, is that which conforms to reality. Just look in your Bible sometime at the intro of the Gospel of Luke. Luke writes this Gospel. What does he say? I did my homework. I met with the eyewitnesses. I looked into all the accounts. I visited the locations. I wanted to make sure that I clearly communicated what actually happened. And so throughout Luke and in to the book of Acts that he also wrote, there are all these geographical and chronological markers because the story is anchored not in myth, but in history and reality. Because Scripture is breathed out by God, it is perfect. And next, because Scripture is breathed out by God, it's sufficient. All that means is this. Everything you need, everything you need to know this side of heaven about how to know God and live for Him in a way that pleases Him, you will find revealed in the Bible. Everything you need to know this side of heaven will be found in the pages between Genesis 1 and Revelation 22. In the Bible, we have all we need to know and follow Jesus. Therefore, it needs no additions, no addendums. Because the Bible is sufficient, we are commanded and forbidden to add or take away from it. His divine power has already given us everything we need for life and godliness. And it's found in the pages of Scripture. Next, because Scripture is breathed out, it's necessary. God would not give us a Bible if we didn't need a Bible. God would not give us something that lasts throughout the ages unless we needed something that was an anchor for this world. Something that was solid and unmoving. Like when something is necessary, it means it's required or essential. You can't live without it. And the Bible is necessary for our salvation because in the Bible... It tells us with consistent clarity the story of redemption. And can I just say, like, over the last couple weeks, I've seen this with such clarity because I've been shredding through the Bible. Like I mentioned I've been kind of getting a little ahead of myself. Like I had the goal that by this Sunday, when I get up to speak on the doctrine of Scripture, I would have, beginning January 1st, read the entire Bible all the way to Revelation 22, but I failed. I didn't make it. I tried. Maybe I'll get there really soon, hopefully by tomorrow, but I'm in Luke chapter 12 today. And as I've gone through the Bible that fast, reading that much, taking on that much truth, one thing has just leapt out at me. This book is so consistent. The God it tells me about is the same old and new. The Messiah it promises, all through the pages of Scripture, He's there. There's this sense of longing for the One who will defeat the enemy, who will bless the nations, who will be a prophet who will be a ruler, who will be a king, who will be a savior all through the pages of Scripture so that when you get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 in Shredders, you're going to know how this feels on the 23rd. And you read 
the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, something inside your heart will leap for joy. Finally, he's here. Finally. Guys, as, as you shred through the Bibles, all of you either reading it as over the course of a year or reading the New Testament this year or reading it over 90 days or 30 days, something that will help you is if you haven't signed up already, sign up for the Christian story class and kind of get an idea like as Sean and, uh, uh, and I guess Trey are the teachers of that, as Sean and Trey get up, to explain the story of God's glory, to unpack that for you. They'll give you markers so that when you read the Bible, you'll be able to get it. You'll see what God is doing in unfolding this amazing story. The Bible is necessary because the Gospel is not intuitive. You would never figure it out for yourself. If all we had was creation to look at, we would know that God is powerful but we'd never know His name. We would know that God is orderly and we'd even have this sense of some expectation from us, but we wouldn't know the name of His Son. If all we had was creation, we would know about God, but we could not ever think of knowing Him. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Like, Where would I be without my Bible? Lost. Finally, because Scripture is breathed out by God, it is clear. God has given us, guys, an intelligible revelation written by humans through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in human language. It doesn't mean that all parts of the Bible are equally easy to understand, but it does mean that when there is lack of clarity in the Bible, the deficiency <laughs> lies with me, <laughs> not, with the, not with the text of Scripture. The clarity of the Bible means that God has written it in such a way that people who come in faith, who want to understand the Bible, regardless of their education, regardless of their culture, regardless of their background, they can understand it. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise even the simple. Now being clear, the Scripture being clear doesn't mean the same thing as being easy. Just like anything else in our life that we, that we value or that matters to us, it requires us to put in some effort. Like we should at least put in as much effort into understanding the Bible that we do in understanding the stats on our favorite team or the characters on our favorite TV show. Right? Like we should put forth some effort. We should give in some prayer. We should ask God for His help. And He will help us because, and I love this quote by Paul Tripp. He says that God goes everywhere that His Word goes. He patiently sits with readers every time they open His book. He teaches them out of His Word. God is not only the author of His Word, but He is also its primary teacher. 
When you get the Word of God, you also get the God of the Word. That's true of no other book. You can buy your latest pulp fiction and read it. You can read some of the great works of literature. You won't get the author sitting with you explaining what he means in every sentence and in every theme. The secret guise of guidance is knowing the guide. I want to close with one Scripture from Psalm 24, verse 15. I remember reading this years ago in the New American Standard and then reading it recently, more recently, ten years ago in the ESV. But it says that the friendship of the Lord is with those who fear Him. And He makes known to them His covenant. That word friendship is interesting because it says if I have that, God's going to make known to me some greater depth about His covenant. So what does the word friendship mean? Well, the CSB like really captures the literal Hebrew meaning of this when it says that friendship means secret counsel. The secret counsel of the Lord is with those who fear Him. I mean, think about it. If you have a friend, don't you tell them things that you don't tell people who aren't your friend? Don't you tell your wife or husband things you wouldn't tell anybody else? Those who are members of your own family or in your small group, people you have a tight relationship with, you open yourself to them in a way that you don't do with other people. And so the ESV captures this with friendship. The CSB captures it with secret counsel. And I love what the NIV says about it. It just simply says, the Lord confides in those who fear Him. He makes known His covenant to them. See, this is what the author is saying. He's saying what we said over and over, that anyone who comes face to face with Jesus Christ with a willing heart, with the fear of the Lord, with that sense of reverence and ranking, God, You are God and I am not. I know that You know more than I know. And so I'm going to trust You to guide me in Your Word. Anyone who opens the Bible with that mindset, God will reveal truth to Him. In fact, God has more to tell for those who are willing. Like that's the, that's the key and secret of interpretation. Do you want to know how to understand the Bible? Without going to seminary? Without going to Bible college? Without having to sit through 12 classes on the Christian story? Though you should sign up. This is how you open your Bible and before you read a word, breathe out this prayer. God, I don't know what you're going to tell me. But my answer is yes. I don't know what you're going to require of me today. What you're going to convict me about in your word. But Lord, my answer is yes. I don't know where you want me to go and who you want me to speak to. I don't know how you're going to illuminate your word for me today, but my answer is yes. I know that you know more than I know, and I would be an utter fool to try to order my steps without you. So Lord, my answer is yes. If you are willing, if you have ears to hear, 
The Spirit of God will meet you in the Word that He has inspired and He will bring it to life in your reading. And you will be changed forever. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Just think of that all the time that You did not leave us in this world with just a story we passed down generation to generation hoping we got it right, but You inspired the prophets of old. You inspired Your prophets to write down for generations yet born Your absolute, authoritative, infallible truth so that we would know how we can know You, how to live in a way that pleases You, I love Your Word, O oh Lord. And I would be lost without it. Father, I thank You that when we read Your Word, You sit with us and You teach us. When we open Your Word with a willing heart, You commune with us. And Lord, as we come to this table of communion, remembering the truths laid out in the Bible that Your Son died on a cross. That He was buried and three days later He rose again. And that death was for us and because of us. It was because of our sin and rebellion, but it was for our salvation and cleansing. Lord, May this table be for Your church this morning. True food. True drink. True nourishment for our souls. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.